Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Director of Performance and Sports Science at the University of Oregon, Andrew Murray. Thanks for tuning in to episode 161 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I've got on Andrew Murray, who I first contacted uh, 18 months ago and finally got around to lining it up and getting a date in the diary and, uh, and getting the podcast uh, done and dusted. So in this episode, given Andrew's background working across three continents, uh, moving from Scotland, uh, the Institute and working in the SPL over to, uh, over to Qatar and working at Aspire, and then finding himself uh, at the University of Oregon. So given that uh, experience that he's had across them three continents, uh, naturally we discuss uh, how he deals, how he's dealt with that culture change and that language change, um, how he communicates uh, with athletes, coaches and staff. So that's a really interesting first bit of the podcast uh, that we get and, and dive quite deep into. Then we're moving on to uh, the impact of a sports scientist and measuring that impact. And also uh, delving a little bit deeper into the data management side of things. So hopefully um, you'll get tons from this podcast, which I know you will. Um, Andrew, the top guy, um, and I'm sure you'll uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Every week, or sometimes daily, I get an email about a new technology or a, a new uh, piece of tech. And I think there's you know there's always going to be more questions than answers, as Johnny Nash once said. But the the problem is answering the ones that are important. And deciding on the ones that are important and then getting the technology to, to answer that question. Just because you have something doesn't mean you need to use it. And just because you have something doesn't mean it's reliable or valid. And so I think that due diligence part has to be done. But just before we do get into the podcast with Andrew, I just want to say a massive thanks to Fald Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar and Human Track for sponsoring this episode today. So as always, if you are interested in anything to do with uh, either of the three products that, that Vald um, supply, go over to valdperformance.com or follow them at valdperformance on Twitter. Also, also a big thanks to Forstex for sponsoring this episode today. So if you are interested in a uh, force plate hardware and software solution, uh, jump over to forstex.com and also check out episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast where I discuss jump monitoring and everything to do with jump monitoring uh, including Forstex itself with Forstex co-owner Dr. Daniel Cohen and um, yeah, it's not just a sales pitch for Forstex we actually, or da- uh, Daniel does um, goes into a lot of detail with regards to jump monitoring uh, and the metrics that may be um, maybe looking really useful uh, for people doing daily monitoring um, and uh, pre-season, uh, in-season monitoring as well. So make sure you check that out. So over to the podcast with Andrew. Hope you enjoy. And again, I would love any feedback on the back of this episode. Thanks for tuning into the Pace Performance Podcast. So this evening, I'm delighted to get Andrew Murray from the University of Oregon. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, that's a pleasure glad, mate. glad to be here transatlantically yeah. absolutely the power of technology yeah so anyone that doesn't know who you are just want to give us a little bit of uh background on yourself and what you're currently doing yeah um so as you said it's uh, andrew murray 
and not as as everyone in the state seems to think the tennis player, but that's uh, people get disappointed when you walk into a room uh, expecting one thing, and, and then this big Scottish guy walks in who's, who doesn't look like the tennis player, but is, but is also Scottish. So, uh, yeah, I've um, been at Oregon now for around 18 months uh, in this role. Uh, prior to that, uh, I was at the Aspire Academy uh, in Qatar, um, working in the uh, physiology department there uh, with a number of your former guests. Uh, on the podcast and then prior to that I worked at the Institute of Sport in Scotland uh, ended up when I finished my time there as, as running that department um, across a number of physiologists um, and being responsible for those guys um, whilst the the senior uh, sorry the the lead took, took a role somewhere else and within the organisation so that was, that was interesting working through the development and, and going through uh, the Commonwealth Games and uh, the Olympics, um, and, and not having two home games in a in a row again, I don't think in, in any time near future kind of prompted that move and, and started the the journey around the world, if you like, that went from from Scotland to the Middle East and from the Middle East to here. So, um, and before that, I worked in, in professional soccer in the UK, um, at a Scottish Premier League club. So, yeah, kind of been all around and, and gone from team sports to individual sports to uh, old older athletes to younger athletes from amateur to professional so kind of feel like I've got the, the full remit and, and now here with 19 sports and, and almost 500 athletes uh, at the university so it's a it's an interesting day-to-day life. Nice. So how long were you in the uh, work in the SPL? Uh, two years so I worked at uh, Harvard Lothian so I don't think it's any secret at that point they had a Eastern European owner who, uh, let's just say, was an interesting time, <laughs> an interesting period in the in the club's history. So uh, I was there for, for two years of that. So a little bit of a change moving from Scotland to uh, to Aspire, to Qatar. And like you say, plenty of, um, there's been quite a few guests on actually from, from Aspire, probably five or six actually, and probably more that have been there and gone to do other things. Yeah. But obviously there was a, Massive culture change from Scotland to Qatar. Uh, yeah, I mean, not least the uh, the language. Um, obviously, the primary business language in the in the Middle East is English, but obviously it goes a long way with the athletes who primarily speak Arabic. If you can, if you can get a few words here and there, and so that was an interesting process. And whilst I've probably not as uh, fluent as I'd like to be and definitely not as fluent as I was. I still, still managed to pick up enough to get by and have, have conversations at least. Um, and I think that, that went a long way. Um, understand the language also meant you could understand things like the, the culture and the religion and all, and all the differences that, that come with changing culture, uh, changing c- country uh, and changing environment and trying to get that, that buy-in with those guys. So, yeah, look, uh, great experience. I really enjoyed time in the desert uh still speak to people who are who are there now and, and they speak highly of it um and so yeah i think it was a it was a great move uh and just i'd probably still be there if this opportunity here hadn't arisen uh, to come and and run the sports performance center here at the university that's called named after marcus mariota um who now plays for the titans and was a former quarterback here but uh, that opportunity arose and, and was too good to turn down. Did the guys at Qatar put on 
lessons for you to, to learn Arabic? Was it was it a thing that you had to do? Was it a member of staff? Uh, or was it something that you took up? Uh, the opportunities were there from from within the the organisation, um, but by no means was it compulsory. But I think it uh, it definitely helped, and I, I chose to take that. Uh, a little bit further there was sort of basic courses and advanced courses and most people did you know try to take that a little bit further to to further their own knowledge and understanding um but really useful uh really difficult real challenge to uh to pick up more than just the the odd word or count to 10 but uh your pidgin arabic gets you by for a little while and then then you need to do a bit more but uh really interesting by no means could I write it I think that's a whole different that's a PhD level qualification different ball yeah, game. but uh, could probably get by so nice so just I know you talked about how many athletes that you're kind of looking after but do you just want to talk to us a little bit about your day to day what your day to day looks like uh, yeah so I mean look the role was created uh, with a focus on on football uh, for those in, in Europe that means American football not soccer uh or for round ball, so that is really the driving force. Um, football generates around eighty percent of the athletics department budget, and so uh, as when it takes up that majority of the revenue, of course, it has a uh, a high place in the in the hierarchy. So day to day, most things are looking after football, but as we said, um, there's nineteen sports and more or less five hundred athletes, so they all require uh, greater or lesser attention and, and when I came in it was uh, yeah there's this performance centre which <clears throat> you can see online and has lots of great tools and technology and a great space but it's really the processes and, and things that go around that and how we can utilise this performance support uh, and use it effectively with our athletes so day to day might look like being at a football practice but now as we move out and transition into other sports as well it could equally be in see me at the basketball arena or spend time with coaches or athletic trainers or um, dealing with administrators or, or whatever that might be just as, as the role requires. But like we said, there, there was people here previously who provided sports science support um, and I've kind of gone from the great platform that they started um, that came in with this, this role and, and that process previously more or less focused around GPS and, and definitely almost exclusively focused around football. But we've tried to now expand. Uh, we're very fortunate that the, the administration and the, the university have seen, uh, excuse me, let turn that off, have seen, uh, seen fit to invest in, in doing that. So um, now we've got that uh, ability, we can invest and try and do that across a number of sports. So um, yeah, we're fortunate that they've made that decision. And we want to try and make that uh, impactful uh, and make a difference within these different sports that we're, that we're now working with. So, and what's the kind of second sport? I'm guessing this is men's and women's that you're across? Yeah, so look, there's 19 sports. And the yeah. when I say that, there will be men's and women's within that. So men's and women's yeah, basketball. Okay. Uh, there's only male football. Uh, there's only women's soccer, for example. Um, but yeah, that's... That's all the different sports. Mm-hmm. So does GPS still form a big part of, of what you're doing? Especially uh, yeah. in, uh, what I'm talking about in the football side of things? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, American football. So, uh, as I said, there's full-time uh, sports science coordinator who, who works with football. Uh, his name's Jay Stellini. He's been here 
just since July. He came in from, from the Newcastle Knights in, in Australia. Uh, and prior to him, there was Hugh Fuligar, who moved on to go to the Oakland Raiders. And before him, there was uh, James Hanish, who went to the Philadelphia Eagles. So um, these guys have, have been in. And, and since James came, when Chip Kelly was the head coach, they brought uh, Catapult in and used that across the squad. Uh, and kind of that relationship and information's developed. Um, and it's been it's great that there's a legacy of information. Um, we can build on that and inform practice. Uh, and we still do that now. Uh, obviously, there's been a couple of coaching changes in that history um, from Chip Kelly to Mark Helfrich and then Mark Helfrich to, to coach Taggart now. Um, and so those, uh, the integration of GPS is obviously waxed and waned with the, the head coach and their education. Because some, uh, you know, Mark came came up through the system and was ingrained in it uh, and understood everything. Uh, for Coach Tiger, it's it's a new technology and not something he's had in, in previous stops. So um, there's a bit of education on that and his staff around how we do it. But yes, we use it every day. We collect information and form the performance team. The performance team being the athletic trainers, the S and C staff, the nutritionists, the sports science about loads and and what guys do. Um, and yeah, we we collect that. Uh, daily so we're just off the, the training field just now and there's people downloading the, today's session so we can, we can get the reports out and inform what happens tomorrow so uh, it, it comes up a lot in that kind of scenario that a head coach has come in who hasn't been exposed to gps before or any other technology and people mentioned the education piece what does that look like or what has that looked like for you guys to make sure that the new head coach is increasing, I suppose, increasing his knowledge about the technology, but you're not obviously forcing that on him. What's that kind of transaction look like? Well, I think there's a, you know, across sports and take take football out of it, but you could say the same thing. You utilise the GPS in soccer and we utilise it in lacrosse as well. Uh, and so any of those head coaches could be applicable. But um, it's really just understanding the the needs and demands of the sport. Um, and trying to explain why we're successful, why we're not. Because if we don't know, then that's a real problem. Um, so it's like uh, treat, treat triumph and disaster just the same. So if we win, we analyse it in the same way as if we lose. Um, and the way we try and do that is build a, a performance model for the sport. Um, so lots of different types of models. You know, the, the physiologist in me would, would like the Krebs cycle as a model. Other people like the... Uh, catwalk models or models of car but really what we're trying to say is what what are the determinants of performance and then where are the factors that we can influence to try and make a difference so you know for uh to go back to guitar an 800 meter runner where do you where can you make a difference is it through his straight running or through his end running or, or and what percentage difference can you make and then when you break that down you might say that it's a running economy issue or an aerobic capacity issue uh, and then you need to be able to identify where that is to go back to American football for our running back, is it the ability to take contact? Is it the ability to change direction? What might it be? Uh, and for us, that education of coaches comes with involving them in building this performance model because there's no good to us as a performance team imparting that what we think is important to the coach. We need to get them involved. You know what when they look at a running back or a, a power forward in basketball, what do they see and what do they look for? Um, what component of the performance is physical, mental or all based and then how do you break that down you know, staying with that running back model if it's about skill, is it about uh, understanding the playbook, 
Uh, does that come from experience? Is that about keeping their, their pads low? Um, all these different factors. But when they then break that down and we can work out the, the areas of the low-hanging fruit that we can go after and try and improve these performances, um, we can then help them. But when we know we're talking the same language then, when we talk about pad leverage, everyone knows what that means. Everyone's got a picture in their head. So we can identify these critical success factors, analyze the performance, and then, and then monitor the progression and try and move that, uh, push the needle forward so we're all getting better all the time. Because ultimately that's what we want. And, and all these things are driven by coaches' questions. The ability to, Fergus talks about and, uh, a few weeks ago, affecting the scoreboard but really what we're saying is improving performance how do we help each other to get whether that's having the best players available most of the time or putting them in best their best physical condition but um, if we have more of our better players available more of the time that's probably going to be useful so that's trying to educate everyone so we're on the same page and, and take them on that journey uh, and whether that's through using the GPS or through using other technologies to test and assess where we are, um, that's the that's kind of the approach we take. Mm-hmm. So I just want to flip that question a little bit and talk about when you came in to Oregon and there was then it was was the head coach when you came in, um, kind of more ver- quite well versed on the use of GPS. Uh, so the, the the current coaching staff is the first time that Oregon has recruited outside of the program. So. Okay. Uh, previously, yes, because they've come through the system and they progress from, in both cases, Chip Kelly and Mark Helfrich have progressed from offensive coordinators to head coach. And so they've been here for a long time. So, yeah. So how did how did that work from you coming in who've not been really been involved in football before with them who are kind of long, obviously long-time coaches? Does it, did, did you have a period of, tra- obviously you had a period of transition? Yeah, for sure. I think, again, that's the, it's like going to the Middle East. And I said this to a few people that uh, I had to learn to speak football just like I learned to speak Arabic that you don't grow up with the game and you're not familiar with it um, so you're getting your wide receivers and tight ends confused and, and you end up with wide ends and tight receivers and, and that's not really what you want um, but that um, process of just immersing yourself in it and being around and just trying to understand it uh, takes time and I think that's what a lot of practitioners, younger or, or more inexperienced, you tend to see that. You tend to see that they want to get in and change things very quickly um, when really you just need to be hanging around and having conversations and gaining trust and, and rapport so that when you do get asked something or you do have an intervention, it's meaningful uh, and you don't make that classic error or clanger of, of getting the positions wrong or, or doing different things. So um, as, as well as the you want to educate the coach on your technologies or your interventions. You need to be educated on the sport, so uh, and that really helps. So for me, that for sure, and, and I had some some great teachers just hanging around and just asking people who are more experienced, you know, what's that? Why are we doing it? But um, I think the key thing is that the, the physiology is the same, no matter what the sport is. The demands on the on the body might be slightly different, but the systems within it are the the same so if you can understand that and apply the same scientific principles across different sports you start to see the similarities and you get the benefit of that experience of having worked in multi-sports with you know rugby sevens or field hockey or swimming and you can kind of see some some commonalities in 
approaches or training design uh, and also some some flaws or gaps that you might be able to expose uh, and, and help bring on when when the time comes so um, yeah you just you just hang around hang around a lot until you find the you know, that low-hanging fruit and, and determine that model that you can all have a, a shared understanding and go after mm-hmm. and sometimes people get um American colleges mixed up as well. I've heard, but we won't, <laughs> we won't talk about. From we, from, only from time to only from time to time. <laughs> yeah. The, so uh, is it? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> now I was going to say, as a as a sports scientist, how do you measure your impact? Obviously, at the end of a season, if the teams do, oh, based on American football again, being, being your biggest sport, if they do well, you're feeling good. But as an individual, how do you measure your impact uh, in in your role? Um, look, for us, we try and focus on uh, objective rather than subjective. Um, we we all know that if the if the team wins, it's because the coaches did well, and if the, the team goes badly, it's probably someone else's fault. And that's speaking in general terms. But um, everything we try and do, we try and show impact for. So uh, we try and use a, a data-driven approach and, and data-supported, uh, evidence-based practice. Um, to try and back up our decision making, but also to show impact in what we do. So, I think that comes back to in the first instance setting your objectives and your goals. So, if you have clear defined performance questions from the coaches or objectives for individual practitioners, then that's easy to define whether you met them or you didn't, and therefore you assess your impact. So, things like decreasing the injury rate, but you can put a hard line around that. We're going from X to Y. Um, whether that's injuries per hour or per snap football sense um, you can measure your impact firstly obviously you need to define what those things are and that's part of what we we did in the, in the first year we looked at our injury rates based on experience and position um, and how those things influence it and you know found some things that are common sense but you know our quarterbacks get injured less in practice well that doesn't surprise anyone when you know they wear a red jersey and no one's allowed to hit them um, and our freshmen get injured less than our seniors. And again, that's not surprising when you realise that uh, freshmen typically redshirt or go through a, a year of training without playing and the majority of the injuries come in games. So um, once we've done that, if you're going to reduce the injuries, who gets injured the most and who are you going to go after? Um, and so we found our, our running back were a highest risk group and if we want to reduce the injuries, maybe we need to change practice. Um, so you know, we, we've published that stuff now and... Uh, paper and IGSPP so people can read that but we've now moved on from that obviously a few years ago and, and how we use that to inform what we do um, really helps and allows us to assess these things but impact I think needs to be supported by something it needs to be uh, probably objective it gets more challenging when you when you try and focus on a subjective outcome uh, and use that as a marker of performance because there's more interpretation uh, or scope for that so um you know, about the the hippo and the or the highest paid person's opinion. Uh, I definitely stole that from somewhere. So I think it was somebody at Google that talked about it. But but how many conversations are settled by uh, or decisions are made by uh, in a group the person who gets paid the most, whether that's the head coach, the CEO, or whatever. But when there's an impasse or a decision to be made, typically you defer to them. And so we're trying to avoid that and have a an objective discussion that, that doesn't just rely on one person's opinion and is based in uh, in data. Mm-hmm. 
just before I forget, is that paper that you mentioned available on ResearchGate? Uh, yeah, it's on my research, uh, and there's some other things that we've done in American football uh, as well, and they're all on ResearchGate, so you, you can get them from there. So as always, just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Andrew. So I hope you enjoyed part one. In part two, we have uh, a little discussion around managing the student-athletes and the student-athlete kind of experience with regards to data collection and what is collected and what's not for various... Um, kind of league uh, reasons, but also kind of ethical reasons as well. So that's a really interesting, uh, in- interesting discussion with Andrew. So if you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure you uh, hit subscribe on your chosen podcast player. But I'd also love some feedback on the back of this episode and any previous episodes. It's really tough to get feedback and candid feedback on the uh, on the podcast and how it runs and guess I'm getting on and and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you are up for giving feedback, please get, uh, send me an email, uh, paceyperformance at gmail.com. Um, join message on Twitter or anything, uh, any line of communication. Uh, feedback is uh, is really welcomed. So over to the uh, part two with Andrew. Hope you enjoy, and I will chat to you soon. I was going to say, do you think the performance questions that you, you talk about, do you think people, and this is massively general and not to point fingers anywhere, but do you think it's easy for people to get roped into, let, let's talk about um, GPS, for instance, get roped into thinking that they need this bit of technology because X team down the road or uh, Y team in another division has it, rather than actually does it fit within is it going to answer the performance question that you have um, as opposed to getting it because other people have got it? Oh, for sure. I mean, there's a definite keep up with the Joneses uh, approach in some cases. Um, every week, or sometimes daily, I get an email about a new technology or a, a new uh, piece of tech. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's always going to be more questions than answers, um, as Johnny Nash once said. But the the problem is answering the ones that are important and deciding on the ones that are important and then getting the technology to, to answer that question. You know, it's no point. Uh, just because you have something doesn't mean you need to use it. And just because you have something doesn't mean it's reliable or valid. And so I think that due diligence part has to be done. Um, you know, we're in a market now of, of technology and, and wearables that's uh, definitely segmented. You know, there's people that focus on uh, distances covered, there's people that focus on uh, EMG or heart rate, it's, but it's really saturated, especially in that, that heart rate space. So you know, how do people talk about that? Uh, and most of these are around monitoring load. And I think the, the summary from the, the Aspire conference on, on training load that is in the special uh, edition of, of IGSPP really covers that, a lot of the different technologies and different ways of, of looking at it. But... Um, trying to avoid these black boxes and going from start trying to work out what's a prototype and what's been well uh, evidenced and is established. You know, there's these sensational media articles that talk about tech technologies that will predict and prevent injuries. It's probably a bit premature to be saying that, but, you know, the, the media like to sensationalise and what's probably a black box of uh, an input and then getting an output and not knowing how it calculates it. Uh, is really important. You know, we were speaking earlier about how many people actually quality sure their GPS, how many people 
know that it measures what it says or do just accept it because the manufacturer tells us that. Um, there's, there's technologies out there that compare, uh, sorry, papers out there that compare different technologies for, for motion capture in, in football, whether that's Prozo and Emotio or, or different GPS technologies uh, and show big differences in selective biases. Um, and then the, you know, the, the other piece is maybe, this is speaking from the States, maybe you take a technology because the league has decided what's there for you. Um, so in the NBA, the NFL, and, and Major League Baseball, there's different approaches. So the NFL has uh, adopted, I think, one technology. I think they've taken Whoop, uh, and Major League Baseball have approved two, which is the Motus uh, technology and, uh, and Whoop as well, I think. And the, the NBA is a bit more cautious about that. But you know, it's still that uh, Occam's razor that Aaron Coots wrote writes about that um, we want to look at our own integrity as a discipline of sports science, but having a parsimonious system that's, that's cost and time effective uh, and really gives us what we need to, what we need from it. You know, there's this new trend that we're going to get away from wearables and, and go down the route of, of implantables, injectables and ingestibles. Um, but typically these things are probably not going to be two or three. They're not going to be good, cheap and fast. They're going to be good and cheap and slow or fast and good and expensive, or, or cheap and fast and terrible. So um, ultimately that technology needs to be supported by people. They're still going to be key in, in whatever you do. Um, but if we can quality assure the technologies uh, and do that due diligence up front and maybe take something on loan and not just take a claim at face value and do our own uh, reliability and validity, then perhaps we can... Uh, we can get away from that and, and make better choices about what we implement and integrate because wearables is a huge industry. Uh, it's something like $6 billion and, and that evolution of how quickly things have come through from you know, that first digital watch in the 70s to what we have now is akin to kind of the, the iPhones and how they've uh, developed. But iPhones are a really small segment of the evolution of the mobile phone from that first Motorola brick that no one would be seen dead with now and then all the way down to when iPhones got small and now they're getting big again. So uh, and soon we'll be walking around with iPads. But, uh, you know, that um, we're almost probably at that plateau of productivity. Uh, we've gone through the almost inflated expectations and, and then suddenly we get disillusioned with it. Uh, and then something changes, we, we become enlightened. And now it's, you know, things are happening all the time. There's all these new twists on, on old themes. Um, that people are, are trying to sell us. So I, I encourage people to be diligent about that. Um, you know, within the NCAA, there's a, an approach that uh, people get concerned about um, monitoring athletes when they're not athletes, so when they're students. So we talk about student-athletes, and they're limited in the time that we have with them, uh, whether that's eight-hour weeks in season or 20-hour weeks out of season. But if we give somebody a, a whoop to monitor their sleep away from practice some people get very concerned that we're not allowing them to be students uh it might be akin to giving them a tag from the local prison you know we're keeping tabs on them 24 hours a day um, and not allowing them to be what they need to be so that's another issue uh, another discussion point uh, here in the states with compliance officers and ncaa uh, officials but regardless of that i think that technology needs to be quality sure and we're not making athletes feel like guinea pigs by sticking a lot of invasive technologies on them. So uh, for sure, it's a 
it's a huge area uh, and something that we have to deal with within the industry uh, and make good choices about uh, what we use and how we use it. How do the um, how do the student athletes feel about that kind of thing about being tracked while they're away from away from college, sleep, etc. Yeah, I mean, look, it's not what we do. Um, we we've done a couple of little projects to look at sleep and stuff like that, um, but it's always been on a sort of voluntary basis. You know, guys, this is why we're doing it. Uh, this is the benefit, uh, and and this is what it's for. Um, Different people take different approaches. Some other schools look at uh, this performance centre more as a as a research facility. You know that they, they use these student athletes as as more guinea pigs than student athletes, and, and we're very conscious of that, and, and really only do it to answer these performance questions and support performance outcomes. So most of the things we've done so far are focused on when the athletes here. Um, I probably couldn't speak to that, but. Um, how would you feel if you're doing lots of these different bits and pieces and if you're not getting a, an immediate return or an immediate uh, impact on your performance um, or maybe short term, but getting some feedback about that. So if you are going to do it, then you need to have some feedback and some rationale for the athletes mm-hmm. um, to get that by. And I think. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned it a few minutes ago that you're getting emails weekly from companies trying to, trying to sell you things the next, you know, it's injury prediction or whatever. What what is the process that you go through? I mean, I'm sure some just go get bin straight away. But what is the process that you go through to go? Okay, that's that's interesting. I'll have a little look. And if you do ha- go to that next step, what is that process that you would go through to actually make sure that is the right thing for you and the budget that you've got? Well, yeah, you've hit one of the nails on the head uh, is budget. So uh, what's what's there? Despite what people think, there's not a bottomless pot of cash out here uh, athletics doesn't have all the money in the world it's got a lot but it's not got all the money in the world um so i think it's you know most of these emails come with a, a claim of oh so and so is using it well the first case is probably then go and speak to so and so and see what they think uh, and so alongside a lot of these emails selling you stuff again from colleagues saying i've seen that you're using this or i've been told that you're using this is that firstly is that true and secondly can you give me an unbiased opinion about the quality of, of these things. Um, if that's not there, then the third bit is then go and see what, what's the company published themselves in terms of reliability or validity or what can they give you. Um, so what's their internal claim? And then if it's in an area that we want to go down, well, potentially we do that. I mean, there's there's these consumer websites. So I mean, this website, the guy called DC Rainmaker, who has for the individual athlete fantastic i mean he goes and trials all these different products and gives you feedback about all these different things about the differences and truly really unbiased so uh, i think that's what's, it, what's that call me uh, dc rainmaker i think it's dc rainmaker.com but he goes out and he's got things like he put every single accelerometer that claims to do step uh, cadence or distance on his trainers and go for a run around paris uh, and give you all the feedback on uh, Garmin and Runscribe and Stride and uh, Milestone, all these different brands that claim to do the same thing and just give you the information from a couple of runs and you'll trial them and you know that's that's great. So there's some, some you know, informal uh, information out there that potentially you can get. So that's the second bit. If there's nothing from the company, does somebody else uh, gone through that process of, of trial and, and reliability? Uh, and if they haven't, what can you do yourself? Uh, I mean, the best one's probably the a publication on 
activity monitors, uh, these healthy adults. So it kind of showed that if you're interested in the number of steps, then um, that might be okay. You can probably get between 5 and 25% variance uh, on the absolute uh, difference. Sleep's probably quite close, probably around about 12%. But when you go to things like uh, moderate and vigorous physical activity, you can get up to 300 times the error. So 25%, 325%. So it uh, depends on the variable you look at because GPS might be really good for these GPS metrics, but it might not be so good at some of the accelerometry ones or some of the metrics that it claims uh, to use. So um, it might not be a new technology. It might be a new algorithm within the technology that you have or a new metric that they've published. Um, and so you need to do the, due, the same due diligence on that. Uh, and then you can try to make an informed decision. So it might be getting that product on trial. It might be trying it out uh, and having the conference just hand it back and say, yeah, thanks, I don't think it does what it's supposed to do. Because um, we've done that and invested a little bit of time up front and saved ourselves problems down the line from taking something that can tell us what we need to do. Mm-hmm. So with all this, can I talk about data? How do you manage all the data that you're collecting? So GPS, jump data, whatever it may be. How are you collating that and making sense of that in kind of one place? And just to, yeah, yeah, I think that's, I'll stick with that. And I'll hold on later. Yeah, I mean that's been a in the first year was was a big part of the role uh, and, and utilizing a an athlete management system or a data management system, however you want to talk about it, to collate all that information because. As we already alluded to, it's a really big organisation. And even within the sport of football, you've got a lot of different parties. You've got uh, the head coach and his assistants, which kind of number about 10 in terms of full-time coaches. Then you've got graduate assistants. And so the kind of people involved on a technical side in football are probably 15 to 20. Then you've got around 10 athletic trainers who are involved uh, daily. You've got five strength staff you've got uh, nutritionists and so on and so on and so on. So there's a lot of people that need to get uh, different levels of information um, dependent on who they are. So the medical staff need to see certain things, nutritionists need to see certain things. And the way we've uh, gone about that is, is utilising this athlete management system to try and get everything in one place, to share that uh, in a one-stop shop. Um, I've been fortunate to come through, you know, through my experiences to be there when uh, the institute in Scotland when when that process started and so you know so I implemented and was there just as a user uh, and then went to, to Aspire in the Middle East and, and we found they had the same system so was there as a builder and building someone else's vision if you like and now kind of here as the architect and, and responsible for that so those experiences have really helped shape uh, learn from your mistakes you know what works and what doesn't but we've you know, set up something now and spent a lot more time uh, understanding things like APIs and how to automate technology and pull it from the cloud and automate processes so that there's not a lot of uh, scope for, for manual errors. You know, people uploading things or double entering things and, and try to develop technologies that talk to one another. Uh, I think that's probably one of the, you know, if someone is developing a technology that they want to sell me, then that's probably one of the key things you look for. How do you get the information out of it and how do you make sense of it to, with other things, um, whether that comes out as a CSV or has an API. So um, you know, we, we use an athlete management system across all of our sports um, and across the organization. And then 
probably the next step is how do we move it to campus and get things like the academic schedules uh, and some of the academic information in there as well. Uh, and that would be the scope for getting the full picture of the of the student athlete, not just the athletics part, but the, the student part as well and how that impacts on things. So can you say which system you use? Yeah, for sure. Um, so we use uh, SmarterBase okay. from Fusion Sport uh, as our athlete management system. Do you, for, from an end user point of view, what makes SmarterBase the one that you choose? Uh, for me, that familiarity and the ability okay. to, I mean, it's so, it's so, I've used it for so long, but it's so customizable now that um, you can make it do whatever you want. Um, now, there might be a learning curve, or there is a learning curve for other people, but um, I've kind of been through that and not had that invested time. So there's a lot out there. We, we have looked at other ones, um, but for now, SmartBase is doing what we need it to do, going well. I'm just listening downstairs. I've got bloody hundreds of trick or treaters at the door. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'm not answering the door. Um, so future, obviously this, uh, what I put to you beforehand, I'd love to get your take on, especially the, the kind of the climate out there as it is now and what you see the future, um, not just wearable tech, but where you see things going. I suppose that the, the nice place to start would be maybe on that data management side. Like what is the next thing that's going to kind of change the change the way you work and how you deliver um, information to your coaches? What do you think is the kind of next thing that's going to blow up? Um, well, look, I think, I mean, there's companies out there doing that really well. So we also utilize Kitman uh, Capture. So we do some of our, our screening on there. Um, but what they're doing well at the moment is, is making those insights actionable. Uh, and so they take the injury information and try and make it specific to, to your sport and your circumstance. So obviously there's the, the published literature, if you if you choose to believe that, that uh, the magic number for acute to chronic workload ratios is, is 0.8 to 1.3, but how applicable is that across sports and in your own circumstance and, and how many opportunities to, to modify training sessions do you take or do you miss by using those reference values? So um, whether that's related back to injury or some metric of performance, uh, that's interesting. Data management's making it actionable in, in real time. And I think the the other bit is how um, not lost my train of thought, but uh, yeah, other, other bits and pieces about about that are yeah, we've got actionable insights in real time for that acute chronic workload ratio or or anything else. But how do we make it meaningful? Uh, what does it mean for for what we're doing? So. That, that's one on the, on the data management side. I think as I alluded to, the uh, linking of technologies so that if you get information from your eccentric flywheel technology in, in the weight room, is that informing what the athletic trainer does in the treatment center or is that informing what your coach does on the field? Can we get that in real time so that people can see what's been done in the same day and it's not just uploaded at the end of the day or, or within the day? Um, and yeah, all those different things. You know, the technology, the trend is still to get smaller. The trend is to, like we said, be wearable or now even smaller and, and implantable or injectable. So uh, we'll see where it goes. Um, but the yeah, monitoring of these different things. For now, the the accelerometry market I think is picking up. It's just um, companies like Motors, uh, a Measure U that have now just recently 
merged or, or being bought over by Vicon have exciting products in those space that tick the reliability and, and accuracy boxes for, for most things. But again, how do we make it actionable? Um, and those companies are starting to do that and, and do exciting things there. So a um, couple to, to look out for. And then, I mean, the same thing with, with force decks. Um, we're going through the who's who of technology now, but you know, make it, making that data quick. I mean, Dan and Phil talk about it all the time. Whatever it took them three days at, at their first football club to turn around all the, the jump day or two weeks even, but making it actionable so that an athlete can walk up and do sales and get feedback. Um, and again, they're not the only people that claim to do that. But how... They're, I think, the only ones that have had a paper that says it's 100% reliable in terms of picking the same points that just came out uh, for their automated analysis. So there's things like that that, again, back up the reliability and validity of, of the product and not just claims that the people who make it make. So, uh, nice. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, uh, a decent place to kind of round up. But I know you've mentioned ResearchGate for the, for the couple of things that you've done um, that are available online, but where can... Where else can people find out uh, what you're up to? Uh, that's probably the best place, to be honest. There's a okay, perfect. Uh, yeah, Twitter account and stuff like that, but it's probably easiest just to go through ResearchGate and there's a few things that are in the works that hopefully will come out there soon. Uh, more in American football and some other pieces as well. So, uh, yeah. Okay. okay. Nice. nice. Shortly? Coming out shortly? A uh, couple soon. A couple with the dreaded reviewer three at the moment so we'll see what comes back nice perfect well um thanks for giving up your time really appreciate it and i'll uh, i'll let you go and get on me day okay no problem thanks, right, for having me on. thanks mate thanks for tuning in to episode 161 of the pacey performance podcast hope you enjoyed the chat with andrew first big thanks is to andrew himself for giving up an hour of his time to speak to me and share his insights and wisdom um, on the Pacey Performance Podcast. Second big thanks goes to Val Performance and Force Decks for sponsoring this episode today. And third and most important, thank you to, to you guys for tuning in. Like I mentioned in the middle of the episode, uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, make sure you hit subscribe on your chosen podcast player. So every Thursday morning UK time, you will get a... Um, a podcast uh, from myself with uh, a world-class guest and got some definitely definitely got some world-class guests coming up so thanks again for tuning in and i will speak to you next week